Man, oh man, it's finale time on the Sopranos podcast. Today, season two, episode 13, greetings from Asbury Park. Sooner or later, you gotta face facts. That quote was spoken by a fish uh, with the voice of Pussy Bompensero in this episode, Funhouse. <laughs> it is season two, episode 13, the finale of season two, written by David Chase and Todd A. Kessler. And it was directed by John Patterson. I think the citation of the pull quote kind of says how nutty this is going to be, guys. What an uh, audacious, incredible, ridiculous, and oddly impactful finale here. Talk about another one that just left you feeling kicked in the gut, too, that ending. I, wanna, I can't wait to talk about the actual ending ending of this. Uh, so good. But what an hour here. I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mancini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. And we're going to take you through hour 13 of season two of this masterpiece series. Guys, season two is in the can. I have to say, I feel as good, possibly better. We can talk about rankings in the retrospective, but uh, it's hard to say that they didn't hit another home run here. Oh, yeah. Season two. I think in any series television, you worry about the so-called sophomore slump that the Mm -hmm. excitement and the dynamism of the first season will have burned off by the time you get to season two. But this is a show that, is explosive so as perfect and complete as season one is season two somehow manages to make it an even more interesting creature as time goes on i agree i also think that given how impactful and climactic the penultimate episode was particularly with respect to two storylines that are now effectively done at least for the moment in this season it left a lot for the last episode to live up to in terms of climax and resolution in rounding this wonderful season out. And the dream sequence is such a brilliant idea because it is different, it's individual, it's something that I think only The Sopranos would do and execute to such a to, in such a brilliant way. Well, they do it so well. Uh, I've never, ever, a lot of shows and movies have dream sequences. Does anyone nail it quite like they do? The the idea oh. of like things shifting, people are no. there one second, they're they're gone the next. Like I had a dream the other night where I was I knew I was home, but it looked nothing like my house. And sure. the Sopranos nails shit like that. Somebody's looking one way, then they're looking the other way. Then they're over here, then they're over here. Someone's <laughs> present, then they're not. Yeah, it's uh, it's powerful. The title of the actual episode, Funhouse. Also refers to, I imagine, two things. One, I think Carmela says at one point, the fun never stops because through the Soprano household, all of these different weird aspects of drama are playing out so that it feels kind of like a carnival. The other aspect of it is, of course, a funhouse mirror, which is a distortion mirror that elongates, contracts parts of the body, gives you a kind of strange, inaccurate view of the world, which yeah. you could argue in, I guess, the, the theme park fashion of say walking around Asbury Park and these other uh, odd places the dream sequences are in some way a funhouse mirror but the dream sequences are also trying to point Tony toward a truth that he's been denying and the funhouse distortion mm-hmm. is his real life yeah it's it, this is a wonderful conceit it's perfectly ex- executed this is a brilliant episode I will probably annoy Soprano podcast fans with how much I talk up one of the directors of the show uh, named John Patterson, but John Patterson directed this episode. So I am vindicated. (laughs) Yeah. What a, a, a Paul, I can hardly follow that up with anything more astute. I think that's so well said. What I will say is that I think part of the fun as an audience member watching fun house is that it turns us all into Dr. Melfi for a time and trying to do a little bit of dream interpretation. Mm. One of the hardest experiences you can have, I think, as a person is trying to make sense of your dreams. In fact, it is so burdensome to do so that there is hardly a more tedious conversation than the one that begins with, hey, I had this dream and here is what happens. Like, you cannot (laughs) handle someone else's, you know? So as a viewer, you're just trying to look through and trying to interpret for yourself. And um, it is weirdly compelling in a way that nothing else has been and chris i would agree nobody does dreams like the sopranos if there's something like you know if there's one thing i would say that they do absolutely do better than everything else it's dreams i don't know of any other thing that does dreams like this ever there are shows that have other compelling scenes of violence there are shows where characters are deceitful to themselves and to those they love 
There are characters who are morally ambiguous, but no one does dreams like this show. Absolutely. 100%. It's, it's just astounding to me, the imagination and creativity that something like this took. I almost can't classify it with other Sopranos episodes because it's just so, and the deeper you look, the more you see, I mean, I'm these dream sequences episodes and spoiler alert, there's going to be more of them. It's just, there's so much there. You, you just catch so many little things on a rewatch. I can't yeah. wait to talk about some of the more audacious choices they made here. Yeah. And, and this could have fallen flat on its face. Uh, it really was a risky move too. In theory, quote unquote, one or two big things happened this episode. And we spend a lot of time just kind of plumbing Tony's subconscious brain. That that's, a, I'd say it's a majority of the episode. So that that's risky. You risk showing and not telling but this show manages to do both so good so Mm -hmm. good we start the episode with a very real scene though in livia's kitchen tony frustrated barbara who we don't see all that often is there trying to figure it out tony's there for her janice is gone what's going to happen to livia she can't go back to green grove she was abusive to the staff (laughs) tony's so frustrated here (laughs) Olivia drops the line. She's taking a page from your wife's book and Tony just blows his stack. That is fucking outrageous. Carmel asked you how many fucking times to come live with us. And he storms out, grabs the airline tickets from the Scatino bust out, says, here, get your sister, get on an airplane, go to Aunt Gemma's in Tucson. Yeah, Tucson, Arizona. Yeah, Tucson, yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) My sister Quintino won't fly. Put her out in the fucking tarmac, Paul. <laughs> By the way, what a what an enchanted life that Barbara leads that she doesn't really have to deal with any of this. She just kind of visits every so often. They they have really I don't know what it is. I I Barbara frustrates me in mm. that she is so separate from all the drama and that everything has fallen on Tony and that there is no shared burden on her part. And he lets her get away with it. He says, you have your own life. What about your life, Tony? What the fuck, man? You know what? Yeah. Her and her dick husband that live in New York, they can take Livia. You know what? We've we've had enough. Yeah. That's funny. (laughs) And it continues to, to Jordan's point, it continues to complicate Tony's life, even though he, in the, the the reveal of her betrayal, in his frustration with her, he has shifted. In the first scene, he would be very ambivalent, even putting some blame on Carmela about the question of whether or not Livia could come live with them. He is not having it when Livia takes a shot at Carmela. And in his frustration, he goes out to his car, gets these airline tickets, slaps them down in front of her, and says, that's all you get from me. This is an episode about seeing the truth, and Tony, in his frustration, is not seeing that he is facilitating, in fact, his mother, again, being a threat to him yeah, by giving her these tickets that are illegally obtained. Yeah, well said. Moving along here, uh, I think this episode benefits from a more methodical kind of breakdown top to bottom here if we're going to analyze these dreams. So from that scene, we move into this calling card scam in the Indian restaurant. Tony's getting a nice envelope. They're having a, what looks to be a delicious dinner. I love Indian food. I hadn't had it uh, in my life until a couple of years ago for the first time. I like Indian food. I think uh, there's certainly a lot of humor around the Indian food this episode. So I don't want anyone to <laughs> think that I, I share the same feelings of many of the characters in the Sopranos universe about Indian food. I think it's delicious. But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, they, they have a nice Indian meal and then go right to Vesuvio where we're revealed, we're let in on this calling card scam. They're having zucchini flowers that look fucking delicious. They Artie's look so good. <laughs> Art, Artie's cooking always looks fucking dynamite. Pussy orders soup with the muscles. Uh, this calling card scam is very fucking awful, but smart. <laughs> it's just a great idea. Usually immigrants, uh, no offense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we also get a little uh, shot of... Uh, First appearance of Patsy Parisi, played by actor Dan Grimaldi, who comes in with uh, Tony's coat that he's about to give Carmela. Dan Grimaldi actually played a character named Philly Parisi in the season premiere of episode of season premiere of season two. So, and it was a very quick hit at the very beginning. He was like the last of Junior's crew that Tony was killing off 
to end right. the war. And uh, he was killed by Gigi in the first episode of season two. And I, I guess they must have liked the actor so much. They wanted to bring him back as his twin brother, Patsy. We find out in the dream that it's a brother for anyone who might have seen Patsy and got confused or not quite remembered Philly from that episode. They mention it in the dream and we see Phil with the bullet hole in his head uh, that uh, they are brothers. And uh, so Patsy comes in, brings him the coat, calls Artie Prince Rogaine. That's one of my favorite Arthur Artie Bucco nicknames. So good. So funny. <laughs> they talk about colleges. Heather didn't walk away with the guts. She's going to Holy Cross. Meadow got into, as we know, some very prestigious schools. This is going to come back a little bit later and one of the more sad buttons toward the end of the episode. But yes, Tony says things are good. What the fuck takes a bite of food? What do we make of these opening moments here? Terrific sequence that opens it and starts with the use of, uh, I think the title of the track is through and through by the Rolling Stones. Spelled with a U, T-H-R-U. Yeah, which also uh, will play out the episode. And in part one of the first big shots, Patterson perfectly does this. A big fish at the Indian restaurant mm -hmm. passes through the frame. Tony at one point says, all my enemies are smoked. Um, yeah. And Big Pussy laughs. I mean, come on. Really nice detail. I think when they finally get to Vesuvio and some of the boys are hanging out there, Big Pussy explains the calling card scam to Furio who originally there had been tension with. Now Furio listens to Big Pussy break down this scam with admiration. And Tony looks on as Pussy talks with admiration. But for just a moment, we see some tension and some uh, a feeling like a tinge of concern in Tony's look at Big Pussy. I wrote down, this is Gandolfini's acting at its most subtle and beautiful. Um, and this will guide us through this episode. Something that he can't articulate is bothering him. The dream will have to show it to him. Excellent acting. You're absolutely correct, Paul. It's noticeable. And he, and these have been peppered in throughout the whole season, by the way. These little glances Tony will throw Pussy. Pussy even talks about one to skip when they had some kind of sandwich mishap. And he's like, there was a look. I noticed it. Since Pussy came back, something inside Tony has been screaming at him. And he's not come to reckon with it. Sure. Yeah, just a brief contribution here, and it does pervade the episode. Just, um, you know, food is used in so many unique ways in The Sopranos, and um, food here at the top of the episode is used in a celebratory way. If you look closely at the dishes that they were being served at the Indian restaurant, a big fish is brought out, of course. They're celebrating again at Vesuvio, because what do you do after having a giant Indian dinner but go out and have a giant Italian dinner uh, for dessert, you know? <laughs> Jesus. Uh, which is awesome. You know what? That's that's great. It's it, They're feeling good about life, and I'm, I'm happy for them, but we know that this food is going to turn uh or is it the food you know i i just this is interesting use of food here in this episode yeah tony goes home plays this little carmela's being a little cold business-like focused on what she's doing tony does this elaborate reveal of the coat and this is I have to think Tony's way of trying to buy himself out of the drama of the last episode as best sure. he can. You know, one of the best ways to get Carmela to have a short memory when it comes to this stuff is to get her something nice. It's a payment for his lifestyle. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. He's going to pay one way or the other. Got to serve somebody. You know, they have a, a moment of, of sensuality and, and they, they go upstairs and she's wearing the coat and they fuck and it's nice and we're. Uh, oddly happy for them even though this marriage is hell on earth and <laughs> when tony is having a little fun with her he or i think phil uh, patsy rather actually put the dress inside a, a suit bag a, a suit bag so it looks like it's a shoot that tony got for himself and he's saying oh there's something well, there's air in the bag the only thing to do is to let it out let mm -hmm. the air out then tony's uh, farts and shits miserably for about <laughs> half the episode to let the let the air out and come to see the truth about mm. big pussy uh so very uh cleverly rendered and i guess that brings us to the first dream yeah we go right into it we're struck immediately they address it with a line but i was struck immediately like oh okay snow they're coming up on meadows graduation and there's snow on the boardwalk something is off here right and he mentions it it's a spring snow but this can't be real where he is and what's meeting. And then we learn very quickly through the absurd dialogue that all is not as it seems. And we are almost definitely in a dream. Tony has some kind of diagnosis of cancer. You got uh, Hesh, Pussy, Sil, Paulie, Christopher, Phil Parisi. I think Gigi makes a little appearance in one of the shots. Uh, shining Philly shoes. Gigi's the guy who shot Philly in the first episode. Then he's shining his shoes. 
He apologizes to Philly. Tony's going to light himself on fire to spare everybody. But, you know, look, there's going to be a lot of interpretation and analysis here. I think the cancer metaphor is pretty apparent. There's a cancer, there's a growth, there's something in the family that isn't well, that is metastasizing, growing, needs to be cut out. And Tony lighting himself on fire has to be his fear of acting on that because it's it's dire consequences. You know, this is life and death stuff. And God, what if you're wrong? Uh, they did to Indira Gandhi as well, which yeah. was mentioned later <laughs> in the episode. But yeah, it, it, I want to mention... Yeah. Go ahead, Jordan. Oh, I was just going to say, it reminded me a little bit of like The Walking Dead in a way. It's just like, mm-hmm. you know, the most honorable thing you can do on The Walking Dead, not a great show, but relevant here, is when you are bitten by a zombie is you let everyone know and then you either kill yourself or they kill you or whatever. This Tony lighting himself on fire business, the self-immolation, this has to do with like what pussy kind of maybe should have done in the first place. Like, guys, I've I've been pinched. I'm going away to jail for a long, mm. long time. See you later, guys. I'll miss you. Or kill himself or something. What he has done is uh, monstrous, right? This is this is like the chipping away, just a little bit at the first revelation, the, the first bit of protection that Tony has given himself against seeing the truth. Mm. Uh, cancer, if it's going to actually be combated, needs to be purged, needs to be cut out, much like... A poison in your system needs to be purged. You're, I mean, if you get food poisoning, you're just going to be shitting for a day. It's that process. And so that's what this is referring to. But there's a lot here. I mean, the, as often happens with a dream or a nightmare, it's overwhelming. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of different things uh, happening or at least come in for mention. There's a very brief mention of some they coming and then they never come. I thought it was the ducks. They're never coming back. Uh, Big Pussy, for example, at one point also disappears in the scene, but in the part when he's there, he pointedly says nothing, and there's a little cigar in his mouth almost blocking the way. Tony will end up having to dig past cigars to find proof of the betrayal. These images just keep coming. Good um, pickup. Yeah. and, And hitting you. So, But I think it's also, it seems deliberate because ultimately you'll have to push through the chaff to get to something more simple and direct, which is a fish saying I'm working for the federal government. Um, (laughs) I guess that's about as direct as these weird dreams are going to get. It's so, God, I'm just in, I I know we've said it, but like David Chase and Todd Kessler, I'm in awe of this. I'm in awe of this because you can write a dream sequence and just have it be a bunch of random shit, but it's, 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 it's simultaneously absurd while also being right on the money and really getting at the heart of what's going on with the character. It's this anxiety, it's this fear, it's this, it's the sickness of him having to cut something out that is uh, uh, ruinous. And yeah, uh, it's just, it's so good. I don't know how the fuck they came up with this. It's just so good. Uh, It's also enormously disorienting for the viewer (laughs) as it is for Tony, which this kind of, off-kiltered way that this whole episode is shot, which will only be exacerbated towards the end of the episode, it puts you off balance in a way that actually, I think, titillates Mm. on occasion as much as it confuses you. Yeah, I was very on edge the entire episode, even though I was perfectly aware after the first dream that we were going to be dealing with more of them. But it it makes you a really active viewer. You cannot yeah. passively watch Funhouse. No, and you're horrified by what you might see, but also excited and laughing. It's a weird combo. It's like, okay, we know we're dreaming, but oh my God, any absurd, crazy thing can happen. It can oh. be Melfi one minute and Annalisa the next, and you have to really be on your toes to catch it. And on that point, how perfect is the choice of setting, uh, at least for a good portion of this, of Asbury Park, mm. which like I think this episode has a gloomy quality, particularly the way that it's shot, but has a beauty and a compelling quality that you cannot look away from. Mm. In fact, even probably had it even more in the year 2000 when I think Asbury Park was falling apart quite a bit more um, than it does right now. It's just, it makes it a perfect setting. Of course, also introduces them, the characters looking out at the water which will bring the episode full circle. And the dreams also build and build and get, I guess, in some weird ways closer to the actual point. The first dream is just fucking nuts and literally ends with the explosion and Tony feeling the gastronomical distress. Then the next one seems to get a little closer. Uh, Silvio in the Al Pacino uh, 
Godfather's sweater saying our true enemy is yet to reveal himself. Then a third dream where Tony sees himself through the viewfinder shooting a friend and ally. Mm. We're getting closer to what these dreams are actually pointing to. Yeah. Yeah, well said. I want to talk about this transition out of this first dream. I've had this happen where I wake up in a half asleep state of emotional distress. Yeah. And then you sit up and you realize, oh, my acid reflux is really bad. Yep. Or, oh, mm-hmm. my diet. It's happened, it's happened to me too. Sure. Mm-hmm. That's an extremely real thing that uh, kudos on them for dramatizing that because I've never actually seen that done. But that's a thing that people, I think, experience as, as you guys have just attested to. So I thought that was well done. Are you laughing at my church bells? Church bells. I hear them. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, yeah, my church bells are going off. I'm not going to cut it out because I'm proud of them. I love the church bells. <laughs> yeah, <they're, laughs> they've become a character on the show now. And uh, he's depressed. It's all a big nothing. That's your mother talking. Carmela comforts him. He sits up. Great acting here. You see it on his face when he goes from bleak depression to, wait a minute, I'm going to shit the bed. Yeah. <laughs> Let me get up. <laughs> he runs. And, you know, I got to say, the Sopranos just barely got away with these farts they just because <laughs> it's like it was just on the edge of too much but it was perfect yeah they were they were coming and that brings me to another point um i i mentioned i underlined it because this is uh, it's, it's not something i'm no sound engineer and i have a certain visual sense because i've been a director and an actor and i've worked with directors on staging certain scenes on camera and on stage so i can pick out certain directorial elements i don't always pay much attention to the sound but the sound design in this episode is fucking bonkers there's this creaky wood sound it's like almost like a, a creaky boardwalk or a rusty hinge almost i can't tell sometimes it vacillates between just just like something just creaking under the weight of something heavy and 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 it's constant anytime there's a dream you're hearing that creaking and it's often the kind of thing that lets you that that brings you back in there's one moment where they do a fake out where tony's in melfi's office and then the second they cut to annalisa and it's not melfi in that chair you hear that that fucking creaking wood and it comes in between each line, I mean, it's just fucking nutty. And then in the real world, you get these these ridiculous farts, and it's a little much, but it works. Uh, it's the most fart since Blazing Saddles. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this might be over intellectualizing it a little bit, but like the uh, the disorienting sounds on the boardwalk, the creaking wood sound or hinges or whatever that's supposed to be. Tony's hilarious farts in the bathroom, things like that. These are Funhouse-esque as well. What mm. is that strange noise is a big part of being inside the Funhouse. You know, this is, it's all meant to just kind of throw you. Yeah. It's like, wow, these are some really serious scenes. Is he farting in the bathroom? What the fuck <laughs> is going on? Wow, this dream sequence is crazy. What is that noise? Is something coming? Is something large looming? Is that wind moving through the boards of the boardwalk? What am I listening to? Everything in this episode is so aggressively confusing. Yeah, it's a story to, to Silvio in the late, much later scene has to uh, leave the room with Big Pussy on the boat because that yeah. fucking noise. There's some kind of dinging going on on the upper deck of the boat. And it's, it's not like Silvio to be so disoriented. Yeah, it's, it's all over. This yeah. confusion, this disorientation, these sounds that interject themselves. It's in the dreams and it's in the reality. It's so good. Yeah, mm. and our waking wow. lives are in some ways just as confusing as what the dreams point to. Um, Again, another brilliant bit that Patterson does or doesn't do. It's so simple. One of the reasons that I thought the 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 that therapy scene was real initially is because it's shot like any other therapy scene. It's very sober. It's got the two shot setup with them talking. There are certain things that when you look at it, I think in retrospect should be giveaways. First of all, Tony looks too healthy mm. for being, say, 24 hours out of this food poisoning thing. He looks too good in the scene. Secondly, his upfront talk about killing Polly, even though it was in a dream is too much. Yeah. I think for, for the way Tony would behave in real life, still being guarded with Melfi. And so then that wonderful reveal of Annalisa is so great, but the dream does point to truth. Um, Melfi in that dream sequence says, you haven't dealt with your anger. Mm. Very important point. Yeah, that's not Mel- that's not Melfi or Annalisa, that's Tony. Mm. That's so crazy. We're gonna take a little bit out of dreamland for a second here, just to talk about these scenes. The kids come out, they hear Tony sick. 
was lighting those big ones. There better be some Coke left in that fridge is all I can say. <laughs> His dad's sick. Oh, it's right. What happened? He ate at an Indian restaurant. That's so racist. <laughs> Meadows, very offended by that. <laughs> we get a, that scene between um, Pussy and Skip real quick. He's handing over his envelope from the uh, calling card uh, pickup, and um, he lets out a very funny uh, line here. President Franklin is my best friend, and he's in there. Of course, yeah. Benjamin Franklin never never a president, but he's on our <laughs> <laughs> he's on our hundred dollar bill. And Skip is like, I know, I know, he's your best friend. He's he he gives him this, you know, hey, listen, somebody uh, went to the program, became a recycling and garbage commissioner of a good sized city in Florida. Wow. Well, there. <laughs> what a prize. Well, there's a future a guy who might have been brushing up against millions of dollars a year would love to hear, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> How exciting. <laughs> yeah, Skip uh, needs to work on his ability to sell his end. <laughs> you know? <laughs> How depressing. Talk about a nightmare. Um, uh, I must reiterate for one final time on this show. Please I do. Fucking, I fucking hate Skip. I think yep. Skip is such a garbage character. Just fuck <laughs> that guy to the end. Skip. Fuck you, Skip. Uh, <laughs> hate, hate him. We're back in the bedroom of the Sopranos and Tony is sipping a Coke again with the Indian food. The chicken, probably a fucking Cocker Spaniel. <laughs> <laughs> fucking goddess with the six arms. No wonder. <laughs> Just, just, just again, they're, they're playing with the racism here, but it's, it's oh very, it's, it's done in a very funny way. This, this is things that I heard growing up about various kinds of, of other course. food. So did um, I. Yeah. I had uncles well, and aunts and. When you are Italian. Yeah. There is the, let's just say it. There is the tendency to make fun of every other race and, and uh, culture's food. Everything yeah. else that everyone eats is some kind of disgusting animal prepared in an alleyway. And I've heard disparaging <laughs> things about everything from Indian food to Irish food to Chinese food. If it's not Italian, it's somehow like not nourishing food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, that's very real. Yeah, Absolutely. I, and I'm, a, I'm also Italian and I grew up with some uh, wonderful Italian cooking. I've come over the years to love a lot of different kinds of food, including Indian food. Yeah. But I'll also say, like, if you, uh, this is another, maybe a, a racially tinged joke, but you have uh, you guys have heard that curry makes you hurry. And if your <laughs> constitution is not used to it, it could affect you in an imbalanced oh, sure. way. But of course, yeah. all of this is, as Melfi points out by the end, a deflection. It's not really about how you got food poisoning. It's about the much more dangerous poison, the purgation of which is going to be much more painful. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. On a personal note, I spent like a third of my New Orleans portion of my honeymoon on the toilet. I mean, <laughs> just because I wasn't used to everything mm, yeah. I cook with down there. It's a whole different thing. That is real. Uh, when you're not used to something, but sure. And on the record, I love Indian food, but these jokes are still funny. I'm sorry. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I agree. 1000%. Anytime I've had Indian food in my life, it's been like, Oh my God, it's so good. So tasty. I could eat buckets of it, but yes, it did. Just it, like it, fart jokes. Isn't like highbrow humor, but it gets me every time. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, Shakespeare joked about farts. It's this show is often Shakespearean. We say it yeah. all the time. Yep. Back on the boardwalk. Junior is staring out a window. We had a very funny shot of a scowling junior. Very interesting, <laughs> weird shot. Uh, we get that face, that the big Asbury Park face there. What's that? I forget, that thing has a name. I'm forgetting the name of it. But uh, Oh, yes. It does have a name. Uh, is it Tilly? Something like that? I'm not sure. Maybe. Let me take a quick, hot second look. Down You're up. talking about like the clown-faced boy? Yeah, with yeah. Like the, I think it's called Tilly for some reason, right? I'm gonna look this up. Like a Tilly, the Tilly mural or Tilly painting or yeah, Tilly. Tilly you're completely correct. Yeah. The nickname yeah, right. of two murals of a grinning figure that were painted on the side of the Palace Amusements building in Asbury Park, New Jersey. Tilly is an amusement yeah. park fun face painted over the winter of 55 to 56. I actually know so that because that. of Kevin Kevin Smith's Instagram account. He had posted a Tilly thing, but yeah, it's go. Tilly. Yeah, Tilly. Very good, Jordan. Wow. Impressed. Always impressed with you. We get uh, this <laughs> just random, random fact. We get this echoey Silvio. Who are you looking for? Someone's looking for me, Tony says. Silvio shows up dressed exactly like Michael in Godfather 3. 
He's got the sweater and everything. It's the same exact thing Michael Corleone is wearing in that scene where he says that famous line in the much disavowed Godfather (laughs) three sequel. Um, That that'll be argued about to the end of time. Maybe we'll get into it on another episode, but yeah, he gives him the archu enemy has yet to reveal himself. And he just kind of scrolls by Tony's walking in place, but there's kind of this weird effect where Silvio is gliding past him, even though Tony's background isn't changing. Uh, then we get this absolutely psychopath fast cam over to the viewer where Tony looks in and he's playing some kind of card game with Pauly. We got more of this ridiculous, annoying, squeaking wood shoots Pauly in the chest foreshadowing. Obviously Tony is, you know, thinking about killing a friend. It's just not the right friend in this dream, but again, and then we get into the, we, we talked about this a little bit. Uh, he's in Melfi's office. I'm having fucked up dreams, fever dreams. Some people are more self-destructive than others, says Annalisa. You going to make me eat something now? No. Up. Vomit. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, what do we think of uh, these these beats and the, everything leading up to Tony getting up and throwing up again here? Shooting Pauly very also reminiscent of how Richie April dies in the previous episode. So just, you know, being shot mm. while being shot while you're sitting down seems yeah. to be a thing uh, that perhaps is not desirable. You you want to, as as is known in literature, you, you want to die on your feet. Yeah. And in, in the mob culture, there's a phrase stand up guy. Yeah. You know, you want to stand up when your time comes. Right. So that's going to come into play in a few minutes. Uh, yes. But mm-hmm. Yes, for sure. Very good. So this happens. Tony is shivering. We get more creaking wood. This hilariously small car with Adriana, Christopher. Furio hands Tony toilet paper. I don't know what to make of that necessarily, except that Furio is kind of Tony's clean up the mess guy. I'm, I don't. This is inscrutable to me. I have no idea why the car is small. I don't know why Adriana's there. I don't have any idea about the toilet paper. No clue. I got nothing for this one. Yeah. Well. We'll leave it up to, I guess it's one of those things that's up to viewer interpretation, but. Yeah, and they're going to like, it. maybe it's broadly stated. They're trying to find somebody. They're trying to find Big Pussy. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're looking, they're, there's a sense of searching, right? All of these yeah. have a sense of we're looking for somebody, we're looking for something. My, my the best. car makes more like creaky noise. Yeah, my best crack at this little moment is just that Furio hands Tony the toilet paper. Normally Furio is Tony's cleanup guy. It's sort of the way of Tony's mind saying, no, you have to clean up this mess. That's that's the best I can make of that. The small yeah. car, I don't know. But uh, if anyone has any other interpretations of that, please send them our way. No, love to hear great. it. Yeah, love to hear it. But it's, it's certainly great imagery. It's a lot of fun. Better than what I have. I have no clue on that one. Really, no idea. <laughs> I watched and I was like, I have no idea what this means. <laughs> Maybe another thing that you might see at a carnival like, Small clowns. car, clown car. Get out of the, this car. Yeah, yeah. Artie comes over in the real world to finalize the menu for the graduation. <laughs> this poor guy. Uh, uh, yep. Oh, hey, he didn't get it from me. <laughs> I have an A rating. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I feel very bad for him. <laughs> <laughs> Send him up. Send him up like the king of the castle. Tony insults the muscles. Oh, you ate in an Indian restaurant? There you go. <laughs> Already just kind of like, that's his answer right there. Already again, playing into exactly what we've talked about there. Just like, oh, oh, okay, of course. Of course you're sick because millions of people don't eat this food. <laughs> uh, just so fucking funny. You know what they cook with? Ghee. It's clarified butter. He's talking about them dousing bodies in butter, which sends Tony into his next, uh, he runs the farting. They call pussy. Pussy had a touch of diarrhea. Stop talking about food, Tony says. Uh, Artie calls him up. I'm sorry, but I feel vindicated. Very funny acting by John. <laughs> John John Ventimiglia really makes the most of this. He's so defensive of his food. I pick and pick every piece of shellfish myself. Prince Edward Island, top of the line. He's just so ready to defend his food. You know, uh, which oddly enough, you know, listen, I love Italian food. I love mussels. I, I feel like ultimately it doesn't matter, but I, I don't think Tony got sick at the, at the Indian restaurant. I think it had to have been a bad muscle. I don't know. <laughs> uh, no I, I actually, you're probably right. I mean, in the practical sense, I think we're kind of led to believe symbolically that he did not experience food poisoning at all. Just that mm. his his subconscious, like the actual truth about in a physical pussy has manifested in physical form. Yeah, mm. that it's a literal disease that must be purged as Paul uh, intimated earlier fascinating it's um it's also it's an interesting question to me other than the practical 
of why Artie is involved in this episode. That, like, yes, he runs a restaurant that they frequent. Yes, of course, top of the line, he'd be the one to cater every aspect of this big graduation party where Meadows' family and friends will be there. But why bring him in? And I think part of it is, is that Tony, in his distressed place, is actually very accusatory of... A, a, he he has an accusatory tone that he employs against Artie, even though Artie is is a friend. I think these guys really do yeah. um, care about each other and love each other. But again, it's a deflection. The yeah. real betrayal is not about food poisoning. The real poison is not about food poisoning. And the real betrayer is even closer. Artie's life is his food. I have a lot of yeah. friends who are actors. And when we're busting balls, I make fun of their acting. That's like, you know, of course, sure. I don't, yeah. yeah, it's like you're going to bust their balls because, yeah. you know, Tony, Tony Lacey, no one's going to fucking sue you. There's something that happens at the end of the scene, too, I think, or what sequence when they call Big Pussy, where both Artie and Carmela are helping Tony to the bathroom. It's the first time this happens in this episode, it's not the last where Tony uses a very specific kind of language. He says to both of them, just let me die. Mm. That's what his mother says. Mm. Oh, um, yeah, for sure. So. He does, he regresses to that childlike place. I was even thinking like when he was shivering and the way he drinks a soda. And I was just like, oh, Carmela's his mom mm-hmm. in this scene. He's a little boy again. And uh, of course, we know he's woken up from uh, having horrible nightmares. You know, uh, there's this is all a big nothing. Yeah, when he's sick, he reverts to this very childlike place i think uh, sigmund freud would not have much of a problem analyzing this next dream tony walking in with massive comically massive erection there uh <laughs> who's your friend pussy i got pussy on the brain great double yeah. writing there yeah no uh, kidding. pussy has always been ripe for a great double entendre as a name but they really run with it here <laughs> who's your friend that line always makes me laugh the fucking sound design again. Every between every line, there's little squeaks. Beep. Got pussy on the brain. Beep. Always do. Beep. It's like <laughs> it's fucking. It's so nutty. Someone sat there and did that. God, I want to. <laughs> I want to. Uh, uh, it's so crazy. I want to hug everybody on this show. Fucks are right on the desk. Boom. Then uh, yeah, what's he smiling for? Oh, he's gritting his teeth. He's freezing. No, nah, he's smiling, Carmela. But yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, get doc- doctor. Dr. Kuzumana, what a useless fucking piece of shit. I fucking hate him. How great Some is this ice chips, back? ice chips. Fuck you. Ice chips. Uh, yeah, I think each Kuzumano checks his watch three times in a two-minute scene. Oh, yeah. Well, he Dr. Kuzumano and Genie will do everything in their power to get away from them as fast as possible, even though we saw in Hit as a Hit and everything, you know, that they have no problem laughing at or talking, mocking gangsters and, and, and bringing all bringing it up like, you know, talking hot shit with his cigars at dinner. But <laughs> actually putting him in the room to take care of Tony. It's, it's <laughs> yeah, cool. Uh, yeah, Kuzumano's annoying. Fuck him. Um, back to the dream. This is also really interesting and important because we're dealing with something that is another brilliant aspect of anticlimax. The sexual tension has been building between these two characters since the first moment of this show, since the pilot. And here they finally smush and it's a dream. And it's not sexy. It's weird. It's uncomfortable. It's kind of overexposing in a way. And very much like Tony fucking the born again Christian girl in house arrest when, and Jordan pointed out, this seems to have no positive benefits on his mood. The redirect from his real problem, which is big pussy to, I guess, a different idea, which is regular pussy is not going to save him. He's going to have to deal with this just like he has to deal with his anger. After Kuzumano's uh, dissertation on Indian spices killing microbial agents, Tony starts singing Gilligan's Isle and we're brought to what I consider to be the, you know, this is the key scene of the episode for as far as the dreams are concerned. Tony's talking to a fish and the fish is pussy and is also a fish. It's just, yeah, you, you just got to accept that reality. That's, that's the reality the show's given you and you have to accept it. That's, that's it. Simultaneously, Salvatore Bompensero, Tony's one of his best friends and a fish. Swimming, best yep. exercise. Anyway, $4 a pound. I've been working with the government. Don't say it. You passed me over for promotion, Tone. You knew. Tony accepts it begrudgingly. These guys on the other side of me, they're asleep. Of course, a play on the old expression, sleeping with the fishes. Taken, I sure. believe, from, from The Godfather. Luca Brasi sleeps with the fishes. 
fish imagery, very prominent mob things like that. And um, Tony flips the thing over. What do we make of this fish scene? What a wild way to deliver this information finally. Yeah, well, though wild, it's the most direct of the dream sequences, mm -hmm. right? Though it's completely absurd. Yeah, yeah. he's talking to a fish. The yeah, fish is the extraordinarily, most yeah. Yeah. The fish is extraordinarily direct with the information. There's no room for misinterpretation by the audience. Yep. The fish speaks the complete truth in Pussy's voice. This is the epiphany moment of the mm -hmm. episode. And throughout part of this episode anyway, there's been this problem, which is that at least as they purport it, they think this is what happened. Tony got food poisoning. So we have to figure out the culprit that gave him this, which I guess would be an item of food and this identifies a piece of fish, but ultimately it's Big Pussy as the real poison, as the real traitor. So the imagery has come full circle here. And dreams come from a lot of images in your own dreams. This happens to me. It comes from something like, oh, I saw, you know, I saw this during my day. Maybe that prompted this in my dream. Of course, there's the mob connection with fish. Luca Brasi sleeps with the fishes, the ocean, the, se the, the sense of place at Asbury Park, like the visual setting. And then on top of that, Tony glances at this huge fish that was brought past him in the Indian restaurant. So he was looking at huge whole fish lying there dead. It's so brilliant that there that, that comes from that works. The fish imagery works on three different levels. So good. Yeah. And he flips it over. He gets he's getting dressed. Carmela's like, absolutely not. We have the graduation. Tony's like, cramps are gone. I got to go out. He's not wasting any time. This stream is the one that moved him to action. He's getting dressed. He's not actively, she still looks like hell, but he's not actively shivering and curled up in a, in a ball shitting. Uh, he is um, getting up. Carmela says, God help you if your head's in that toilet bowl for graduation tomorrow, because I sure won't. And he goes to pussies with Silvio. We, the audience, know what this means, that he's showing up ready for business. Oh, you're going to yep. go look at a boat. You show up, he, go, he makes a point to go up to pussy's bedroom so that he doesn't have time to put on anything, get, you know, do anything differently. They pull him out of bed, make him throw clothes on. Silvio's watching him get dressed as Tony runs to the bathroom. Very smart. Uh, we know later in the episode uh, that at the same time, Paulie is at the boat, probably arranging it or whatever the hell they worked out with the boat. Sal gets taken downstairs and Tony uses his stomach virus to snoop around and in the cigar bottom of the cigar box, he sees it. He tells Paulie in season one when he's wondering, you know, you want, I, I want you to see that wire strapped to his body. I want you to see it. This Tony sees it with his eyes, taps out the bottom of the, the false bottom of the cigar box and sees it all there. And he goes down, ready to go sh look shopping for a boat. And you can kind of see a little look on Silvio's face. Like, oh, we're on. This is on. It's time. Yeah. And uh, uh, it's time. It's time to talk about this, guys. Uh, they take him out to the boat, and we all know where this goes. We all watch the sure. episode. Devastating. Wonderful yes. uh, last dream sequence that Tony briefly has in the car. Yeah. Where he announces he just gets to talk about his wonderful boat. I guess I'm sure also <laughs> reflecting a dreamlike wish meadow in the dream anyway, reveals that she's going to Columbia, mm -hmm. which might as well, which if she were to decide that might as well be like going to school in New Jersey. Right. Hop, skip and a jump. Yep. That's where they'd want yeah, her. Right over well, the bridge. Close. You know. But yeah, let, let's talk about this. The first thing I want to say is a technical thing and then we can get into the rest of it. Sure. I, I want everyone out there who has never seen it before to look back on that scene or rewatch it and realize that they did not shoot those interior shots on a boat. The camera is doing that movement. The fucking, they oh. ring the light, the, the, that, all that rocking, that sickness, when they're inside, obviously they shot the exterior stuff on a boat, but those interior shots of pussy and during that whole execution scene, the tequila, the confrontation, the lights are rocking, the camera's moving, the actors are swaying. Yeah. No, no boat. They, they all just made that look that That's way. That's really cool. Yeah. Which is amazing and not easy to do. Sure. Um, well, let me let me kick it off by stating the obvious, um, which is that this scene on the boat, which takes place in the real world, very much mirrors all of our dream sequences that we've seen to this point. We are off kilter. We have a rocking camera. We have a strange noise somewhere in the background. Mm -hmm. We have the ideas of water and of fish and of these people being all together and of this disorientation. There's a feeling of dread and unease between all of them. Um, so 
it, it's almost like this last scene in the real world might as well be another dream sequence. But of course, this one is this one's quite quite real. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it's an amazing scene. Yeah, Paul is still he, he is. He is. I'm not in that. What, what else? else? Yeah. What, what? <laughs> Even at this moment, still, understandably, gangsters are self-involved, but just, oh, no, I, I don't give a shit about you're betraying the business that other people are in. What about other stuff that I might have been involved in? <laughs> yeah. Beautiful song choice here. Baubles, bangles, and beads. Uh, Frank Sinatra, I believe this is. It's perfect. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's perfect. It, it just creates, makes it more unsettling and, and, and kind of this uneasy feeling and Tony grills him and pussy knows the jig is up. You know, they had me, yeah. Tony. He's still, there's still some degree of denial here. He's, he was playing both sides of the fence. He's not totally lying here, but he's, he's, I don't know what he thinks he's gaining by telling them this. He's, he's not walking off the boat. Is he trying to hold on to some sense of honor that he didn't fully give them everything he could, that he didn't tip them off about Bevilacqua and you know i was mind fucking these donkeys like you wouldn't believe this disinformation shit it's a good idea you know does yeah. he think he's walking off this boat or is he just trying to preserve i mean he can't he can't be that delusional well he certainly doesn't beg for his life yeah. uh, i mean i don't think he thinks the decision is going to go back the other way i think part of this is just trying to set the record straight as to how he will maybe be remembered yeah he does briefly become himself for just a glimmer just a moment when he's joking around about the broad that could drink him under the table and he'd eat her out while he was down there and having these tequila shots and whatever yeah. so I, I think he's trying to set the record straight for all time like listen i was never fully cooperative uh, listen, I'm still the guy you remember me to be. He doesn't really go out in a very dignified manner, of course, but I, I he knows he's dead. I, I, I don't, he is not begging for his life. He he knows he can't get off the boat. I, I, yeah. I do believe that. And he, what's sad about that moment you just mentioned, Jordan, is, you know, real or not, whether he's this whole Puerto Rico thing was a fabrication right. or, or, or not, it's that Tony, they, they don't trust him. They can't even trust, but does she even really exist? Yeah. You know, is this, you know, they, yeah, they share this nice laugh and have a drink. And for a brief moment, it's like, oh, this is the old puss. And we're all just, we're just three friends having a laugh here, four friends. And uh, then it's just like, you know, what, what of any of it was real and pussy has to just accept that it's over. And he goes out and I mean, this is just great acting. It's heartbreaking. Vincent Pastore does such good work here. It's so grounded and real. Yes. I'm not in the face. You can see how crushed and angry the guys are. They're treating him perhaps a little better than they would your average run-of-the-mill rat. You know, they're giving him the respect of telling him, you know, you're like a brother to us. You know, not in the face. He has trouble standing. His inner ear balance. He asks if he can sit down, and before he's able to do it, Tony up with the gun, and they each get a shot on him. Apparently in the script, it only said that they all lift their guns and shoot. Patterson told Gandolfini, I guess, no, Tony shoots first. Tony's had enough. Mm. Perfectly done, brilliantly executed by uh, Gandolfini, heartbreaking, brutal scene. Yeah, I mean, there's not a lot to say, but it, it strikes me, as you mentioned earlier, Chris, that I think Pussy's betrayal is so total that even Silvio, to me, the consummate cooler head mm -hmm. gangster, is fucked up. And then it elicits Tony's anger. You don't see me getting all fucked up. It's like, no, Tony, you are the epitome of fucked up. But <laughs> in any case, yeah. it's 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 a burden for them all to carry, as is evinced by the weight of Big Pussy in the bag and how much big uh, how much Polly is struggling with it. So yeah, in an episode full of subtext, there's not much subtext here. The truth is laid bare. The uh, cancer is cut out. It's devastating to everyone involved, mm -hmm. and. It's over. They, they, the show. I love that the show really takes its time with this. They let the scene breathe. They show a very long shot of Tony, got, and then cutting back to the water as they drive out. That's Pussy's home is for for the rest of eternity, is uh, yeah. out out in the ocean blue. And also this this burial at sea uh, kind of makes him into a kind of a symbolic fish as well, which is something we can maybe hang on to as an image. Yes, absolutely. Get the weights, they dump them. And Tony's home watching The Temptations a few minutes later. Clearly not there mentally. He's fried. Sure. He's obviously, this has taken a huge toll on him. And he has to put on the face. He snaps a little bit of Carmella. 
Uh, whose fault is that? You know, don't press your luck with this diarrhea. And Livia calls. She's been picked up at the airport. These fucking stolen tickets. And as this phone call is happening, Harris and Cubitoso show up. They have a warrant. They've already searched the Suburban. They have the tickets. Boom. Mail and wire fraud. They got evidence linking him to the Scatino bust out. He's under arrest and they're searching the house, pulling him out on the eve of Meadows graduation. Her and a bunch of friends come in at the worst possible moment. And we have that awesome scene between Meadow and Carmela upstairs in Meadows room. What do we make of all this? Uh, an interesting bomb to drop after what just happened. Yeah, the episode could ride this to the end, but here's another last little fuck you to everybody. <laughs> yeah, sure. it's rough. It's it's deeply embarrassing. I think uh, humiliating for a young woman um, to see your father carried off like that yeah. anyway, let alone coming back in a celebratory mood with a bunch of friends, the, the, I yeah. guess the night before graduation. And uh, she says as much, she rushes up to her room. Um, when Carmela goes and talks to her later, Carmela certainly feels for her. But I also think, of course, in some ways reflecting Car Carmela is reflecting her own embarrassment and her own feelings of upset. Can't you wait until sometime later to persecute him and to persecute us? That's the way that she's viewing this. In an episode where a lot of the main characters flounder, to me, not surprising that Meadow comes to center pretty quickly. This is who dad is. And if my friends don't, and my friends don't judge me, and if they do, I'll cut them off. You cut off what's cancerous. Mm -hmm. And that's the way Meadow looks at it. Yeah. I can't uh, say it better than Paul. I, I think actually she's learned the lesson that Tony was trying to teach her by giving her Eric's car mm. <laughs> earlier in the season, right? Yes. Hey, don't forget where you come from. This is our business. You know what? She's learned. She knows. She gets you know, it. She, she can't be embarrassed or hurt by this because this is the truth. She understands that. She's a smart, smart girl. Yeah, that's why I like the scene so much. It is a kind of a long time coming moment for her where her arc in this season comes to a close she reaches somewhere here that she wasn't earlier this year it was uh, it was good to watch and it was made me kind of sad and proud of her at the same time it was uh sure. well this is a sort of another kind of graduation right this this yeah. realization mm -hmm. tony's getting printed i love the moment he <laughs> tosses the little ball of garbage at the random fbi guy at, at the great. desk <laughs> i tell you frank i forget about any deli trays coming your way in the future <laughs> i love this show does it well, but it's it's a you can see it in other things too. I love petty dial. I love petty back and forths between lawmen and criminals like this. It's just you know it's good stuff because they they want to win. They're on opposite sides, and Frank thinks you know they they all think they got some victory on their hands here. And Tony is you know upset, but this is a loss. But he's also trying to keep up the swagger. But he's sick, so he's like fallen. I got a food poisoning. You think this bothers me, you fuckhead? <laughs> like that, they lock him in his cage. He gets out. He's out on bail. Neil Mink calms him down. You know, there's no capital crimes here. Go on with your life. So this is something that's going to be hanging over if there are future seasons of this show. But uh, for now, Mink is telling him, hey, look, you're fine. Like, you know, we'll, we'll get through this. Go, go, go live your life. Go to your daughter's graduation. Don't stress it out. And then Tony, cue Tony in Melfi's office. My mother, my fucking goddamn idiot of a mother. You think she was never <laughs> married to Johnny Boy Soprano. This is my, uh, other than perhaps the first scene with them in the diner in episode one of this season. This is my favorite Tony Melfi scene this, this season because it's, it's simultaneously growth for Melfi. But it's also, it, it just says everything you need to say about their therapy in season two. It's just uh, roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. Tony is just in no condition to confront any of this. He's so regressed to quote, to talk about what Jordan was talking about earlier, that he actually, he, he quotes Livia directly. <laughs> poor me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, poor yeah. you, poor me. That's, that's, that's right out of Livia's playbook. He is just blowing her off not having it tells her fuck you and she is having a great i love her realization here at some point i became scared of you and in her, you know that's kind of what interfered with the work she is over it and she's ready to get to the bottom she's asking him big questions here what kind of a mother did you have what kind of other trauma did you deal with if she tried to kill you what did you grow up with what about your father the tough guy was he able to protect you kids from your borderline mother and tony is just outright 
bouncing, deflecting, like, a, you know, just whoop, swatting her away, not taking her seriously. Uh, I had a dream. I fucked your brains out right on that desk. <sighs> this scene rules, but it's, it's, um, I, I yeah, I, I felt similarly. And I, I was glad in that moment that she allowed herself to feel frustrated and even offended by that. She has every right for him to uh, speak to her in such a, a way. You threw that at me like a rock. <laughs> um, very proud of her for this scene. It's hard. Uh, Tony has certainly been through a lot and his denial system is powerful and immense as are his deflections, which she points out directly. And this isn't going to get better mm. until he starts to really confront it. It, yeah, it, it brings it all full circle. It actually, to me, is more the essence of this final episode yeah. than even much of the specifics. In the dream, Big Pussy was, as a fish was saying, as we use for a pull quote, sooner or later, you got to face facts. And in this scene, in a much bigger way, thematically, Melfi is trying to impress upon Tony that in spite of your deflections and in spite of your rants about your mother or uh, racist rants about Indian food, you got to face up to what's making you angry because also she's too smart for this. I've been treating you two years. I pick up sorrow coming from you. What else has happened? Nothing. Mm. Lie. The biggest lie. So where are we? Yeah. Mm. And it, it, they hit another wall. Maybe, baby. And he goes off singing uh, very flippantly. She's disappointed, yeah. but as dark and as bleak as this is on Tony's end of things, we have one caveat that Melfi climbed out of the hole she found herself in. She realized yeah. what her problem was. She became afraid of him, mortified by him, terrified of him. It, it caused her to decline and spin out of control. She got a handle on it. She's being medicated. She addressed it in her own therapy and she confronted it with Tony and she's ready to do the work is Tony. But at least Melfi is out of her self-destructive pattern. So we can be happy for that because it's the last we're going to see of her this season. Any final thoughts on Melfi and, and her arc here? And I would only add that uh, Tony's behavior here is perhaps um, relevant to what we keep seeing in our dream sequences. Uh, you know, the Asbury Park boardwalk you know, palace amusements, however you want to refer to it. It's meant to be a place of good humor and of fun and where clownish behavior would be acceptable. Mm. Uh, Tony's clownish behavior in this therapy session is not welcome. It's not appropriate. But also, you don't need to be a psychiatrist to see that there is decay there, right? This is not someone who is actually jolly or actually jocular or actually having a good time. In fact, he seems about as amusing or about as amused as any one of those rickety attractions that are rotting away on the ocean. Mm. Nice. Yeah, very well, well said. said. There is something to that, especially, you know, the, the, the Asbury Park has a very specific look. It's like, you know, it it, it, it looks like kind of fun and, and amusement parky, but also well past its prime. You know, it kind of brings up that nostalgia and, and you know it was chosen for a reason very well said jordan i like that a lot let's talk about the end here because it's it, we're kind of buttoning up all the last little holes uh it's graduation day meadow graduates they're out there in the audience we get a couple last little touchdowns in the scene at the school junior's there you know giving her a little present tony kind of whisks them out of there if carmelo sees you shit i'm leaving I'm leaving. I'm leaving. Uh, he tells he tells Chris, "I'm proposing you to get your button." That's huge news. Big deal. Uh, yeah, big deal. Chris, I deserve it. Got no spleen gene. <laughs> uh, but it's nice. We're you know, Chris has come a long way. He's ditched. The, he's done with the, those two douchebags are out of his life. He survived his ordeal. He seems to be back on the straight and narrow. He had a back half of the season where Chris wasn't adding to the drama or trouble in Tony's life. So it's time. Let's bump him up. Let's see what we can do. He's earned it. And he certainly has. He's been through a lot. So in this world, a fuck up. Yeah, immature. Sure. But he deserves his button and I'm excited for him. We'll see what happens with that if uh, in, in season three. Then we get I love that they address this. I love that we get a last moment with Davy Scatino. Guy can't even get a coffee out of that fucking thing without it just not working. Like this guy is a shit sandwich. He is Eddie Mush. He is cursed. <laughs> He's just, this guy is just a sad sack in every way of, <laughs> how do we feel about his luck turning around outside of Las Vegas? Yeah. 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 This, of course, yeah. this yeah, degenerate no. gambler. It's yeah. Not, Tony yeah. says Vegas, huh? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Drive safe, Davey. <laughs> like, it's sort of like, are you out of your fucking mind? This guy 
his, he's at rock bottom and it's not even close yet. He's he's going to go fuck his life up some more in Vegas, I have no doubt. Sure. And let's not forget Tony's, the overall effect of Tony as a poison himself and as Decay. Davey will be involved in the last sequence in this episode, the montage that shows the different aspects of their business as well as its after effects. Dave and his life just spinning out is an after effect of that. Yes. And look, I'm, I'm sure the state school he's going to is fine. And this is not a knock on state school and education's an education. Ultimately, it's what you make of it. But he wanted to go to Georgetown and they they didn't happen for him. Vic was Yeah, Vic must not have been able to drum up the cash. Yeah. Uh, so he's going to state school. So that I mean, that family was ruined by, by Tony completely and utterly. But what a lovely party. Oh, it's beautiful. They have the whole house decorated up. Um, some beautiful, beautiful family portrait. And yeah, let's talk about it because we're here. This last sequence, we see Angie saying, Sal knew it was today. He's so self-centered, not knowing that uh, at some point she's going to realize that uh, her wish in the early part of the season is going to come true, that he actually will never come back through the door Mm. and uh, say hi to her. And uh, then, yeah, Rolling Stones, the beautiful early sounds of the sounds of the first half of that song kind of take us through this little montage and they do such a powerful job with this. And I mean, powerful as in, it really gets the point across. It's sort of like, wow, look at this beautiful party, this happy smiling family, this gorgeous house, uh, smiling faces, raised drinks, nice suits, ridiculous vests, uh, just, <laughs> just jovial, happy celebration. And what's it all built on? It's built on this foundation of decay, ruination. Uh, we get shots of these immigrants getting ripped off on the calling cards, CD porn shops, the fucking motel from season one. He's pulling a cigarette yeah. out of a junkie's hand. Davey right. moving out to Vegas. Uh, it just it's it's such it's it's sickening in such a visceral way. And we get that amazing shot of Carmela kind of poking out of the hallway, looking out at Tony. He's lighting up a cigar and he just blows the smoke. It's filled up the screen. He looks like the devil and uh, get that long shot of the ocean. And then the song kicks into high gear and we go into credits. This ending gets me every time. I mean, it, it's so good. Just fucking throws you for a loop. It says everything it needs to say. It ties it all up so nicely. What do we make of the final moments of season two, boys? The party that ends the story is compelling visually. It's got the great music, as you said, the montage of all the different aspects of the business that provide. Uh, it also brings back a lot of the characters that we've seen in the dreams, the guys getting back together and all that stuff. And there's a lot of stuff with posing and posture, people taking pictures. AJ, I think, has a video camera mm -hmm. and people posing, wearing the mask in a way. Mm -hmm. But when Carmela's looking for Tony, Tony's alone. And his face is sort of inscrutable, as you said, kind of looking like the devil, like there's just nothing there. It's another kind of mask, mm -hmm. but it's his lone mask. And he lights up that cigar and then it dissolves to the water where I assume his mind is. And it is beautiful, but it is very unsettling mm -hmm. to me to watch. And that, so we wear these masks, but we hold our secrets. And that's how I felt at the end, um, moving in its way and very powerful. So Sopranos podcast listeners, I think already know that I work in public education. I'm a school teacher and uh, listen, graduation is a big deal in school. It's um, it's it's the biggest deal. And uh, my colleague, who, who I won't name on the podcast, who's a, a senior teacher. In fact, she was my mentor when I first started teaching. She always referred to high school graduation as the last sure thing. And uh, excuse me. I think what she meant by that was, uh, you know, after high school graduation, we see a lot of things fall apart in families. Uh, that's when uh, parents start to get divorced, grandparents start to die, uh, children become distanced from their parents from, you know, for one reason or another. But somehow uh, you can always get to the high school graduation somehow, somehow, like every family makes that. So it's not it's not an act of individual achievement, but it's a, it's sort of a family achievement. Uh, and you all 
you all get there together. So it's it's, it's a, a greatly moving scene. It's intercut with these these brilliant scenes from Tony's corrupt empire, everything from you know the Titleman's motel to the to the calling card scam to you know everything going on there. We know that Chris is getting his button, and it's just you know all of our characters have have graduated in this moment in this way. But the last shot of this episode is the ocean, as if to say we're still in the funhouse. Mm, mm. I don't know that I'm going to top that. Are you, uh, any final thoughts on this episode? Oh, I, I just, I wanted to mention, we, we titled this episode um, Greetings from Asbury Park, uh, which of course is a, a riff on Greetings from Asbury Park, New Jersey, the Springsteen album. Don't need to reiterate that Stevie Van Zandt is a part of the E Street Band, famously. And the, the character of New Jersey is really present here in the fact that all the dream sequences are set in and around Asbury Park that we've, we've talked about quite a lot this a episode. Very, a very Jersey place. Uh, yeah, like the, a very Jersey place, like the most Jersey place. And um, we've talked about this on the show before, especially in our first season, but like New Jersey takes a lot of hits. It is the butt of like every joke. Like, yes, people make fun of the South for like, ha 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 incest and they don't read or whatever. But New Jersey, what has it done wrong? It's a perfectly northern place where a lot of hardworking blue collar people live. And this episode is kind of a running symbolic commentary on the decay that preys on working class people and what that looks like over time. Asbury Park in its heyday, I encourage the listeners, go look at the historical photos of Asbury Park from, sure, 80 years ago, 100 years ago. This was something beautiful. Mm. But time and the culture and the decline of the American middle working class has just preyed on it. And Asbury Park has become kind of a symbol for this thing that preys on good people. Of course, I'm thinking of the Scatino bust out, but I'm also just thinking of you know, how it, how the culture itself is stuck in this, in this fun house that actually the amusement park decayed is something that is more true and more relevant than the amusement park in its, in its time of, of good quality. You know, I I just thought that was really especially relevant and especially relevant to this dark undercurrent that runs through all the Sopranos, that it's not just the story of these characters, but it's in a way, it's very much an American story, the story of the American working class family, what preys on them and what preys on their dreams. Amen. Amen. And that's the Sopranos in a nutshell. And that's why this episode kind of ties all the themes together so well. What is a fun house, guys? It's scary. It's silly. It's dangerous, but fun. And it's also a little bit, it's an idea that's a little bit past its prime. All of these themes run so vividly through the show and was, were expressed in the subconscious and externalities of this brilliant script by Chase and Kessler and told so beautifully and, and with such stylistic vision by John Patterson. Of course, it goes without saying, masterfully acted. So... This is why we all get into this shit, man. This is why stories are worth telling. And 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 Sopranos, once again, they knocked it out of the knocked it out of the park here. And I'm so oh, yeah. happy uh, to have been doing this with you guys. This wraps up our season two. I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mancini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. And we will be back. We're gonna do a bangerang season two retrospective, like we did for season one. We're gonna oh, yeah. go over our favorites. Great food moments, music moments, favorite episodes, favorite quotes, favorite characters. Uh, It's all going to be there. We're going to have Lily back, hopefully. It's going to be a great time. And uh, thank you all for joining us. Uh, I got to give an A, A plus to season two. It's very minimal or possibly without flaw, if that's even possible. So thank you all so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure for you with you boys. We got another season in the can. And I'll see you in two weeks for the retrospective. I got myself a gun